Welcome to the 405th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome anthropologist Timothy Gitson, a co-author of the article Pandemic Surveillance and Homophobia in South Korea. A reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 1st, 2022, the full vaccination rate for COVID-19 in South Korea is 84.8%. And 86.9%, in South Korea, 86.9% in China. That's according to our world in data. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, the vaccination rate, full vaccination rate, is 79% in Japan. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, Filipino human rights head who clashed with Duterte dies of COVID. This was published October 9th, 2021 in Al Jazeera. Jose Luis Martin Gascon served as the chairman of the Commission on Human Rights, a constitutional body that probes rights issues. In a social media post, Jose Luis Martin Gascon's brother, Miguel, confirmed the news, writing in Tagalog, of all the battles you fought, we had to lose to COVID. Love you, big brother. The Philippine Daily Inquirer also quoted the Commission on Human Rights as saying that Gascon passed away. We've lost a human rights champion. He was not just a fellow public servant, he was also my good friend, added Senator Arisa Hontiveros. A lawyer and a graduate of the University of Cambridge in the UK, he was the youngest member of the Constitutional Commission that drafted the Philippines' new constitution in 1987, following the restoration of the country's democracy. Gascon was appointed in 2015 by then-President Benigno Aquino as chairman of the CHR an independent constitutional office whose task is to look into all human rights violations as well as abuses of civil and political rights. After Aquino's term ended in 2016, Gascon continued to serve his post into the term of the incumbent Duterte. His term, which was set to expire in May of this year, 2022, is protected by the Constitution. Because of his role in investigating cases of human rights violations, he was frequently a target of Duterte's verbal attacks. In 2017, when Gascon demanded an investigation into the series of killings of mostly male teenagers linked to the war on drugs, the president falsely accused him of being gay or a pedophile. Gascon deflected the name-calling and the hurtful language, telling ABS-CBN News that he hopes the president might choose to withdraw them in order to have a common civic space. He said his role at the CHR is part of the checks and balance system of Philippine democracy. In 2018, when Duterte defended his war on drugs, 
by declaring in his annual State of the Nation address that your concern is human rights, mine is human lives, Gascon retorted that respecting human rights and endorsing crime can never be equated. He pointed out that human rights defenders are only calling to uphold the rule of law and constitutional guarantees as the government conducts its anti-illegal drugs campaign, not impeding law enforcement. Gascon supported the investigation of the International Criminal Court, the ICC, into Duterte's war on drugs that killed thousands of impoverished Filipinos accused of using illegal drugs. Independent investigators, journalists, and witnesses have said that many of the victims were unarmed or were innocent of the crime. Human rights, lawyers, groups, activists, and journalists mourned the death of Gascon. Idra Oliala, president of the National Union of Public People's Lawyers, said he was really shocked and sad to learn of the news. Another human being gone while the clowns and leeches are mocking and toying on our rights, he wrote on social media. Ed Tay, a human rights lawyer and former Supreme Court spokesman, also wrote on social media, you were a giant for human rights. The forest is fairer because of your fall, but the seeds that you planted will yield fruit. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and I'd like to introduce my guest to you, Timothy Gitson. Timothy Gitson is a sociocultural anthropologist and postdoctoral fellow in the Society of Fellows in the Humanities at the University of Hong Kong. His research focuses on the intersections of security, surveillance, queer politics, and science and technology. His work has been published in Positions Transgender Studies Quarterly, Cultural Studies, and is forthcoming in Current Anthropology. Timothy Gitson, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And I should have double-checked before we got on. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? You are. It's correct. Okay, great. Well, um, I'd like to start the way I generally do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there. Sure. So I'm here in Hong Kong, um, and it's a bit dicey to say the least. Um, you know, so Hong Kong has a dynamic, what they call the dynamic zero COVID policy, which means that they attempt to root out any local transmission, untraceable transmissions. Um, and so for most of the pandemic, most of the COVID-19 uh, uh, cases have been located at the airport to imported cases, people flying into to Hong Kong. Um, and they've, you know, Hong Kong has had, you know, pretty they've done pretty well in terms of, you know, going for long stretches of months without any local transmission. But because of Omicron around Christmas time, um, we've seen a pretty sharp rise, you know, triple digits every day for the last couple of weeks. Um, and as a result, um, the government has, you know, issued a pretty stringent lockdown, you know, bars, restaurants, everything, they're closed after 6 p.m. Gyms, swimming pools are all shut down. Flights are suspended from Australia, Canada, France, the Philippines, India, Pakistan, the UK, and the United States until February 18th. Um, and suspension of face-to-face -face teaching has uh, gone on and will go on until February 21st. Um, but interestingly enough, they've, uh, you know, as, as a way to kind of, you know, get travel back and, and alleviate some of the stress, they've recently uh, amended the 
pretty strict 21 day hotel quarantine policy to 14 days. Um, and yet, you know, people can't fly into Hong Kong. So it's a little, you know, hit and miss for some. Thanks for that snapshot. And I think people listening, particularly in the United States, might be mm -hmm. startled to learn that there's still places in the world where something like a 21-day quarantine would exist or a zero COVID policy For is sure. in place. Um, to the extent that there is um, critique of those mm -hmm. public policies or dialogue around the yeah. wisdom of those policies and uh, you know when and how they should be modified um, yeah. related to something like Omicron, um, how does that take shape in Hong Kong? In other words, how do you follow the discussion? It's a good question. Um, there was a there was an article recently in the South China Morning Post um, this past week of a bunch of disease experts calling for a living with type of policy as they've been adopting, you know, in most of the world now, um, particularly in response to Omicron. Um, but the problem that Hong Kong faces is, you know, though vaccination rates are, are you know steady around seventy to seventy five percent for two doses, um, most of those not getting vaccinated are the elderly. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a fear, particularly within the government, um, at least fear that they've expressed that, um, you know, if they move to some other type of living with policy, that, you know, they would see a lot of elderly people die as a result. Um, and so trying to, you know, arbitrate you know, a living with policy versus a, um, a uh, you know, a, attempting to safeguard against those, you know, who would hit, be hit hardest. Um, most of the, uh, most of the discussion of, you know, a different kind of, a different kind of way of dealing with it, <clears throat> excuse me, happens, you know, in uh, like online circles. And so, for example, um, there's a great Facebook group that I've, you know, I've been lucky enough to to stumble upon when I had to travel to the travel back from the United States last year and had to go through 21 days of quarantine. Um, about people who have went through 21 days of quarantine, um, foreigners who have gone through the 21 days of quarantine, looking at all the different policies, all the different rules, because they're constantly instituting new rules of, you know, you need a test 72 hours before you board a flight to Hong Kong, and then it's 48 hours, you know, the kindest test, the kind of, you know, written documentation you need. And so a lot of the discussion happens in those spaces. And so to see the, you know, South China Morning Post publish something, you know, calling for a different approach, you know, from these disease experts was, was quite impressive, I must say. What was that 21 days like for you? <laughs> it was so it's an interesting story right um when i was back in the states i actually got covid um oh. this was back in 2019 so this was before any kind of vaccination um it was a pretty mild case thankfully um and so you know i had recovered and had tested negative before i got on onto the plane but when you get to the airport in hong kong you get tested again and mm. when i got tested there was still some residual you know, COVID in my, in, in my system. And so they, the, the test kept coming back inconclusive. So they sent me to the hospital. And then, so I spent the first couple of days at the hospital in isolation until they did an antibody test. Once they did the antibody test, they could see that, oh, he already had COVID. And so then they shipped me to the, the hotel. It was, you know, it was the early days of the 21 day quarantine, early days of the hotel quarantine period. 
Um, and I was lucky enough to be staying in a hotel that had just opened. Um, and so, you know, the room was pristine. The food was much to be imagined. But, you know, these days things are a lot more regimented. And so you can get takeout, for example, but if it arrives, has to arrive in a certain time. Otherwise, they won't deliver it to your room until the next block of a lot of time. And so there's, you know, small little rules like that that they've instituted. Um, thankfully, I didn't, you know, I didn't go too crazy. Um, but it was, you know, in, in, it was a bit difficult. I'm not going to lie. Well, I, I had to do 14 days arriving here almost yeah. exactly a year ago in South Korea with my family. And um, I had the idea it was going to be a great realization <laughs> Do some writing, yeah. play games with the family, a bit of a rest, and of course, multiple different things collided that I right. was I should have been expecting. One is that nobody stopped working. Yeah. Um, yeah, those of us who are in jobs where we can pivot to sort of our online mm -hmm. life have done so, and then also just being inside that much, yeah, uh, was really, yeah. you know, and I'm trying to give some context here. It's not like I'm an essential worker and had to put my life on the line. But right. psychologically, I found it much harder than I was expecting. I don't know oh, if yeah. that resonates for you. For sure. I mean, it was I isolated, four walls. You know, the room was small enough to begin with. Um, you know, had to do your own laundry in the sink. Um, that was, you know, they gave you some detergent to, to deal with that. But, yeah, I mean, life went on because I had, you know, I was teaching my first two classes while, you know, in quarantine. And so, you know, for some, for the mental stability, you know, was suffering at some point, but then I also had to perform, you know, and so it was this constant jockeying between, you know, woe is me and, oh, I'm, you know, responsible for these 35 students. And so I have to, you know, put on a happy face in some ways. So it was an interesting experiment, to say the least. Let me just remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today to anthropologist Timothy Gitson, and we're going to talk now about some um, of your work, uh, Timothy, particularly a piece that you published with the Social Science Research Council, Pandemic mm. Surveillance and Homophobia in South Korea. And you did this with Wong Kun Chun, Chun uh, and this appeared September 23rd of 2021. And I'm mm. going to put a link up to this in a minute so people can find that. So Pandemic Surveillance and Homophobia in South Korea, um, give us a little background how you came um, to this study? Sure. So, you know, Wangun and I, um, we've known each other for a number of years. And uh, we decided that after, so a little context, uh, I'm sure you've given lots of context with regards to Korea, but in the early days of the pandemic in Korea, they, you know, tracked it in terms of outbreak, the first outbreak, the second outbreak, um, third outbreak in small clusters. The second outbreak of COVID in, in May 2020 was within designated bars and clubs that later were, you know, called or later called online and in news, you know, uh, newspapers and, and the media as gay clubs and gay bars. Um, and as a result, there was this massive uptick in homophobia um, spreading throughout the nation, blaming queer folks, LGBTQ plus folks for the latest outbreak in COVID. Um, and what was what we were finding were, or, you know, what I initially noticed in these, you know, in these media reports and in this, these discussions and in this homophobia, as much homophobia is, is attacking the morality of the people, right? 
And so here we started to see, you know, this connection between morality and, and COVID. Um, and so Wongun and I decided to uh, apply for an SSRC, a Social Science Research Council um, uh, uh, grant in order to study um, not just the outbreak within the clubs, but the ways in which it affected um, the club goers, the queer LGBTQ plus folks, um, with special attention to um, to the rise in pandemic surveillance. You know, at the time, Korea was being praised as you know as having the democratic response, the quote quote unquote democratic response to the pandemic. You know, in juxtaposition to a place like China that was instituting massive lockdowns of cities. You know, Korea was able to stay relatively open and use surveillance technologies in order to contact trace more, um, more precisely. Um, and as a result, all of, these, uh, all of these surveillance technologies were being um, collected together in order to create this pretty massive pandemic uh, surveillance system um, that we thought needed some... Um, some critique, some uh, some discussion outside of the you know quote unquote democratic response that that was yeah. that it was getting, and so we you know devised a study to look at both this system and the the uh, the effect that this system had on the people it was targeting, namely queer folks, linked to this uh, this one outbreak in these spaces. Um, and so as, what we ended up doing was uh, over, over about six or seven months, we interviewed, you know, 24, 25 different in-depth interviews with uh, folks associated with this, this particular outbreak on these spaces, um, in addition to doing some digital ethnographic work on online forums to trace some of the things that we were finding in the interviews on online spaces. Um, and then tried to piece together um, what this surveillance system was. And so the piece that, you know, we, that we wrote for SSRC was uh, a way to look at both the surveillance system and then this response that activists, queer uh, human rights activists had, um, you know, in response to this, this big outbreak. One of the things you note in the, in the piece is mm -hmm. that there's a, a legacy of the government's response to the MERS right. outbreak a few years ago, uh, 2015, and um, and the government then was faulted for not being transparent enough about mm -hmm. the way it handled data, and of course that administration had its own problems, uh, right. many many problems related to the lack of transparency, to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. But um, say a little bit more about that legacy and how it yeah. then shapes government decision early in 2020 to install mm -hmm. this sort of surveillance transparency surveillance methodology. Right. So as it, you know, as you noted, um, the, the issue of transparency, but also what was interesting about that, that 2015 outbreak of the Middle East respiratory syndrome, coronavirus, MERS, was that many of the you know, necessary policies or many of the um, public health uh, institutions and 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 policies were already in place um, for a number of years. They had been in place since the WHO, the World Health Organization, created a, a type of massive template for the world 
for types of pandemic epidemic responses, infectious disease responses. And so CREA had these plans in place that they just didn't follow themselves. And so in many ways, the COVID, you know, the COVID response was a way to, you know, go back to those original plans and to, you know, um, to intensify them in some ways. And so one of the ways in which they did this was with um, the Infectious Disease Control and Prevention Act, the IDCP Act, which allowed relevant public health agencies to request personal information for public health and scientific purposes. Um, what initially, the, the uh, original way in which this act was used, or the, uh, the original way in which uh, government organizations could request information was that the Korean Center for Disease Control, the KCDC, would have to petition the National Police Agency for relevant personal information. The police agency would then, you know, arbitrate the request and provide it to the KCDC. Nowadays, what, what they're able to do is bypass, in some ways, the National Police Agency altogether. The, the initial request goes through them, but when it comes back, it doesn't have to go back through the National Police Agency. So there's a lot more um, fluidity in terms of the types of requests being made. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, they're able to collect, the, the Korean Center for Disease Control is able to collect all of this personal information um, based on the, you know, the, the auspices of a public health, uh, you know, outbreak pandemic. Um, interestingly enough, what we also found was that um, in, in, in the wake of COVID-19, um, a number of different uh, or a number of different ministries within the Korean government band together to create what's called the Epidemic Investigation Support System, IEISS. Um, and what it does is it's, it's this online system that coalesces all of this data that they're able to input data at all different levels. So, you know, through immigration, once you go through immigration, they're able to use the system, um, any type of public health venue that you go to. And it coalesces all this data that then is able to be called upon when needed, when there's suspected cases, when there are, you know, they're attempting to do some sort of contact tracing. And all of this is coming as a result of, you know, the MERS outbreak. outbreak because of, you know, issues around transparency, but also because, um, you know, the, the bureaucracy behind MERS wasn't, you know, was thought of as, as lacking as well. The government's handling of it, you know, from a um, bureaucratic standpoint was thought of as being um, problematic. Well, thank you for that background. So then, you know, when it's getting deployed, let's talk a little bit about why then mm -hmm. early in 2020, it targets LGBTQ uh, people in South Korea. I mean, you know, you talked a little bit about how the data is collected. Um, and I, and so it has a little bit to do about where people were, and it has a little bit to do about the kinds of questions that are asked in the clinic, I suppose. Yeah. How yeah. does it come together as a, yeah. as a piece of data that then becomes public, I guess, for anyone in South Korea who's following the pandemic? Right. Take note of. So, you know, it's like you noted, there are a couple different ways in which, you know, we see this system come into contact then with, you know, your ordinary person, particularly with, you know, those being targeted here, queer folks. Um, it has to do, you know, so part of the data that's being collected, uh, cell phone GPS data, facial recognition software is a new, um, facial recognition data is a new 
um, uh, variant that they've started collecting um, financial data, social media data, and sometimes CCTV camera data. And so when, you know, if, if queer folks are in bars and clubs, for example, during the May 2020 outbreak, and they're using their, um, you know, they, they use their cell phone in these spaces, and they use their credit cards for financial transactions, you know, the, the EISS is able to triangulate, you know, cell phone GPS data, financial transactions, if they post on social media, you know, they're able to triangulate this data, the, these, these data points into a, you know, into a, a picture of who this person is. Um, what gets then shared with, you know, the public is, is a bit, it, it, it's a bit, I don't want to say controversial, but it's a bit evolving. It's, it's evolving in terms of what gets shared. Originally, they would share things like, you know, the gender of the individual, um, any kind of notable characteristics. Sometimes, you know, activists noted that they were sharing, you know, information around where, you know, listing what kind of places people were going to, not just the places, but, you know, that they were gay bars or gay clubs, right? Um, that, you know, that the, the age, the types of professions that they had, where they live. Um, and the problem at the time, you know, to take this into consideration is that, you know, this is also being filtered through a news agent, you know, a set of news agencies that are already linking this outbreak to queer spaces, right? And so here you have um, all of this data that's being transmitted to the public at the time of essentially queer folks, right? So because the only people getting tested, the only people who are testing positive, you know, the only suspected cases at this time in May 2020 are being associated with these queer spaces, that any of this data that then gets shared with the public is essentially a list of queer folks, right? You know, and I should give a, a broader, if, if it's okay, a broader yeah, picture. Yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about why that, why that matters. I mean, I think maybe yeah. a little bit of a landscape of, of you know, the status of gay rights mm -hmm. in South Korea. Sure. So there are no legal protections for uh, LGBTQ folks in South Korea. There's no, but there, at the same time, there are no um, laws prohibiting LGBTQ folks, LGBTQ sexualities or anything like that, except in the military. The military has an anti-sodomy law all men are required to serve at least 18 months in the military. And so queer activists you know, deem that a, a de facto mm. um, anti-gay law for, you know, for Korea itself. And so they're working to um, you know, get that repealed, though it's been unsuccessful for the past 10 years or so um, in their attempts. There are no, there's no marriage equality. There's, you know, HIV AIDS is highly stigmatized. Um, most people don't come out um, as a result of, you know, re resulting from um, really stringent, you know, family norms, heteronormative, the, the, you know, nuclear family of, of mom, dad, and the kids. Um, and there's also a pretty strong evangelical conservative Christian contingency in Korea that is, you know, a big factor in this type of anti-LGBT protesting that takes place uh, in Korea. It's, um, you know, mostly driven by an evangelical right that is tied to a lot of conservative politicians as well. Um, but interestingly enough, the current, you know, the current president, 
Munjain, who is a former human rights lawyer, has publicly opposed homosexuality as well um, in, in numerous ways. And so, you know, there's this, there's this, uh, this setting, this context of, you know, of in some ways secrecy, but in some ways also it's being, you know, heavily tied to a sense of morality, right? Mm-hmm. That to be gay is to be immoral, is to be sick, is to be diseased, right? It's to be HIV positive. Um, interestingly enough to, you know, to go back to, to COVID for a moment, um, in the wake of uh, the May 2020 outbreak, you had some public health, uh, not experts, public health uh, uh, officials or um, workers uh, at these testing facilities asking folks about their HIV status. Um, coming out of May 2020, you know, again, the only people being who were associated with um, with the outbreak were, you know, considered to be queer or gay, and so. As a result, you know, you have an essential, essentially this, this, uh, this type of configuration where, you know, people who are gay are HIV positive and they have COVID and that's a danger, right? It's a, it's a moral danger. And so a lot of, a lot of sexuality discourse in Korea is being tied to morality, um, which isn't all that surprising given, you know, the history of sexuality discourse within the world. following closely the, the media reports mm-hmm. um, and maybe you can help me a little bit with this on how mainstream yeah. this this gets in South Korea um, yeah. I follow the English language outlets right. um, as closely as I can but the um, you know the extent to which they're tying those media outlets are tying these this outbreak in May of 2020 mm-hmm. to uh, what would be considered a, uh, an alternative or even quote unquote a deviant uh, kind of lifestyle. So is that was that being made explicitly? That sort of connection was being made explicitly in the media. And and I ask that question because then that sort of fits into a framework in which you say, look, if you're playing by the rules of society, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. then COVID's not a problem for you. Please follow all of the yeah. appropriate public health directives. But what's just one level below that is a stigmatization of lifestyle, right. which then sort of bursts into the open. Was, was that really openly sort of discussed by the media or was it always a little bit sub rosa? It was, it, it depends on who you would ask, right? In terms of, you know, from the media out, from the media that I was following, right? It was always a bit sub rosa. It was always a bit right, right below the epidermis in a sense, right? Right below the surface. Though, um, you know, there were some extremely right, you know, Christian newspapers that were really, you know, hitting home the immorality and the immoral practices. Um, but the reason why I say, you know, it depends on who you ask is because queer activists, one of the things that they did as a result of, you know, this outbreak or in response to this outbreak, rather, um, was that they would hold daily press conferences and daily accountability, essentially doing a daily accountability of the Korean press. Of, of, of pinpointing 
which presses, you know, which newspaper outlets, media outlets were, you know, were crossing the line in terms of stigmatization, marginalization, and um, and homophobia, right? Which presses were saying too much or were being too, um, you know, too too direct in their, you know, their their pigeonholing of of queer folks or their, you know, calling out of queer folks as being immoral. Um, and so, you know, you had those cases, right? You had you had mainstream media um, reporting on it, right, and reporting on, you know, what what clubs were people were being attended to, associating those clubs with, you know, queer spaces. Um, some media again were a little bit closer to the, you know, tying it to a morality. Um, but m- a lot of that discussion was also happening in online forums in um, daily conversations, in, you know, the, the opinion pieces, right? And as opposed to the supposed fact-based pieces. And so um, there you started to see, you know, for example, um, Pink News reported on, um, and I can send you the link uh, you know, later, I have it somewhere, but Pink News reported on suspected uh, people on YouTube who were attempting to out queer folks on YouTube, right? In in response to um, in response to this outbreak, we had some um, people that we interviewed, for example, who were in the military at the time. And one, you know, one guy was talking about how when the outbreak happened, all of his fellow soldiers, you know, he's like, yeah, about ninety nine percent of his fellow soldiers started cursing at queer folks, right? And started you know going off on on you know, making these homophobic slurs, you know, all around him, right? Not knowing, of course, that he himself is queer. But, you know, this became, in the interviews that we did, this became a very big factor. People were scared. People were fearful about losing their jobs, about being outed. Um, And it was, you know, it was was quite frightening for them. I want to just highlight that you you wrote an article that appeared... Uh, in the East Asia Forum, this was in December of 2021, mm-hmm. uh, titled The Queer Way of South Korea. And there you write about, um, I think, what we would call pride festivals. The, you're talking about the Seoul Queer Culture Festival held mm-hmm. at the Seoul City Hall Plaza, which has been mm-hmm. growing steadily since 2015. I just want to quote a, a line from it here. You write, in, the, in this landscape, the record number of queer culture festival participants is a significant statement. There are lesser known gains by the LGBTQ community that deserve greater international attention. The last 10 years, you write, have seen queer culture festivals emerge in locations throughout South Korea, including in Daegu, Busan, Jeju Island, Jeonju, Gwangju, and Gyeongnam. Um, so, I mean, that that's a really interesting convergence. So you're tracking basically you know, LGBTQ um, rights and the growth mm-hmm. of rights and cultural, the, the mm-hmm. battle over cultural acceptance in South Korea. And then here comes the pandemic. Yeah. And that intersection and this, you know, this surveillance model um, is imposed. Is that, how big of a setback is that yeah. for LGBTQ advocates in South Korea and, and around the world? I mean, we're talking about South Korea, but everything right. that's right. happening in South Korea here is playing out in other countries as well, sure. this stigmatization and marginalization within the context of the state assuming special rights powers during the pandemic. Right, right. So, is it how big of a setback is it? I don't know how you would even measure that, but 
Yeah, that's it's a good question and one that you know I I've been thinking about lately and and talking to some you know some of my activist colleagues uh, and interlocutors in Korea. Um, I think part of the setback has to do with uh, the the outbreak itself. The second outbreak, you know, within these queer spaces was definitely um, you know it, it it fell within you know in in my own research it kind of fell within you know what was to be expected in some senses with when MERS, you know, with, with the MERS epidemic, there was a, a, a similar type of discourse being peddled by these anti-LGBT protesters um, around a so-called super virus that AIDS and MERS were going to combine within the bodies of homosexuals and form this super virus. I mean, it's a pretty ludicrous claim, but you know, this was being peddled in, you know, in, in mainstream um, discourse, not on the news, but, you know, people would know about this because of online forums. Um, and so with COVID, it, it kind of, you know, was ramped up, of course, but it was not for, for, for queer folks in Korea, for me, it wasn't all that surprising that this, that this type of association would happen. Um, and I would say that actually one of the, you know, most inspiring things that came out as a result was that queer activist response actually had some pretty long-lasting effects. The, the type of data that was being shared with the public was, you know, was amended as a result of queer activist response. You know, they, the different uh, city public health uh, ordinances that, that govern what public health workers during testing, you know, during testing um, could ask and talk about also was amended as a result of this. And so queer activists had some, you know, pretty big impact on, you know, on actual policy and actual guidelines, which was phenomenal in a lot of ways. You, you know, the government, human rights campaign, human, the National Human Rights Committee, they all came out, you know, and sort of tried to say, you know, um, you know, marginalization and oppression and homophobia at this time isn't going to help us. We need to get past that. Um, and so that was, that was big for, you know, for, for queer activists. But I think, you know, one of the largest uh, problems that, you know, that queer activism, queer, you know, rights is facing in Korea, and I would, you know, I would also argue worldwide is that because a lot of, you know, a lot of activities were halted, you know, a lot of the, the idea of marginalization kind of went out the window right, of stigmatization, that we're not focused on that right now, we need to focus on getting through this virus and getting through this pandemic. And as a result, you know, things like an anti-discrimination law, um, repealing the anti-sodomy law in the military, they, they just go on hold. Um, and a lot of those offline spaces as well then, you know, migrate to online. And as you know, that it's, it's great, but it doesn't create the same sense of community that it would offline, you know, and one of, you know, one of also one of the, 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 the drawbacks to this as well is that a lot of these gay bars and clubs as a result, you know, have closed and will never recover in some ways because of this association, because of that May 2020 outbreak. I want to ask you sort of a broader question just about yeah. um, disease and surveillance. Mm -hmm. um, because when we look, you know, start to compare the approaches of different countries. I mean, in the United States, generally, I could say very early 
government gave up. The federal yeah. government gave up on the idea that you would do some aggressive track and trace kind yeah. of, you know, and the idea that you would, you know, download apps on your phone where you would, and you would receive, you know, daily text messages from the president of your country or from local health. Right. You know, the many things we get used to in South Korea, the sort of constant flow of information about what's right. going on with the pandemic, just completely not unacceptable to, to some in the United States, but mm-hmm. just the, this, there's no capacity for it. So that surveillance discussion um, hasn't really had traction in the U.S. But, yeah. you know, thinking about it in South Korea or like where you are in Hong Kong, other parts of um, Asia and Australia that have pursued mm-hmm. really aggressive, either zero COVID or, you know, really stringent COVID restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how you think about the deployment of this technology. I mean, because it sort of taps into a, a broader discourse around the, you know, the surveillance state. And you mentioned mm-hmm. CCTV cameras and the aggregation of data, which is potentially tracking people's financial movements and their physical movements yeah. all around. So, you know, sometimes this gets very high flown and not really based in empirical <laughs> data. Yeah. It's like your big brother is there. And if you want to find right. him, go to, go to Asia to find him. And in Western media, sometimes early on, and I think even still now, it that kind of coverage is is racist or quasi racist to me. Oh, it's sure. like the people in Asia are as if Asia is a is a place, you know. And right. and so there's a lot of complicated layers to this mm-hmm. with with these cameras and these tracking mm-hmm. maps in the center of it. How do you find your way through that sort of theoretical? tangle yeah. to make sense of what's really happening and the long-term impact it'll have on democracies like South Korea? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, as an anthropologist, for me, I always go back to the interlocutors. I always go back to the data itself, right? And so we we talked to folks who were being affected by all of this, right? Whether they knew they were being affected by it or not. And what's interesting in what we found was, you know, a, a, we, we found many who were quite fearful of being tracked, right, of being outed as a result. People who, you know, quit their jobs as opposed to, you know, being, at, being, um, being outed uh, in terms of, uh, you know, it, of, of any kind of information getting out, right? They would rather quit their jobs. Um, even even if they had took time to get tested, right? They knew that if they got tested, that was going to out them in some ways because that was being associated with queer spaces and queer folks. Um, and so, you know, most of what we were looking at were how were people themselves understanding this technology? Because you're absolutely right. You know, when we talk about these surveillance, the surveillance state and surveillance technologies, you know, it's there are many different ways in which we can come at it. But, you know, for me, coming at it from the ground up, you know, looking at the people who are affected by it and how they're affected, whether it be actual, you know, we've had some cases where, you know, folks would get calls, even, even though they never gave their phone number to any, you know, government institution or whatnot, they would get calls because the government had triangulated their data to being in those spaces. And so they would get calls to say, oh, you need to go get tested. Um, and so there were incidences of that. Um, but, you know, the, uh, on the other side of that too, which is interesting is that you had several who thought that the government handling of the situation was just, you know, you had some who thought it was abysmal because of 
it was docking human rights. On the other side, you had, you know, those queer folks who thought, well, we're in a pandemic. What else are we going to do? You know, it's an emergency. We have to do this. Right. And so they kind of saw it as a an inevitable situation. Right. Particularly in Korea, um, where they thought, well, you know, given Korea's high throughput in terms of, you know, Internet, Internet data tra- trafficking and, and its you know, technological advancement, it, how is this any different than what was going on before? You know, it's just aggregating all the stuff to one central location. You know, it, for some, they thought, well, this was this was always going to happen. And, you know, there's a, a tie in here. I know you do HIV mm-hmm. AIDS research as well. Yeah. Maybe you can help me with this. I mean, this is really, to me, a fascinating tie in here with the problem of testing yeah. in the history of LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, early in the HIV in, in the earlier days of HIV, you know, this idea of getting tested, well, when testing became available. Yeah. Um, that became a point at which public health officials, I think, really struggled because they wanted people to get tested, but they want to be able mm-hmm. to know um, where the disease is. But I think within the community, of course, as you've just described, I mean, that's really complicated, right? I mean, it's not as if people want to be sick. Right. But they're balancing a number of different risks that they face in their daily right. life. I mean, you pointed out, you know, loss of family connection, community, right. loss of job or violence right. itself. And so at, even what you just described, really striking to me, somebody maybe having to make the choice. Um, mm-hmm. Well, maybe I just won't know if I have COVID. Yeah. Um, or defying some government order that I have to be tested versus yeah. these other things that might happen to me. It's almost an impossible set of of choices for someone to have right. to make, I think. Right. For sure. You know, and it, what happened, so after the May 2020 outbreak, initially COVID tests were not anonymous. You had to give your, you know, your uh, ID, your, you know, you had to record who you were whenever you got tested. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, after this May 2020 outbreak where thousands of people needed to get tested, but no one was getting tested. Right, because they were fearful that getting tested because it wasn't anonymous, it would out them. And so one of the things that queer activists did actually as a result was push the government to make testing anonymous. Um, and so all you had to do was give your phone number um, as a result. But um, and and then people started to get tested. But you know, what was interesting is that in the data we found, you know, it those people that we interviewed, some questioned the very notion of anonymous testing. They said, you know, at this point, what does it matter? Because we already, anyone who gets tested is already being associated with these organizations, with, you know, with these spaces. And so being tested itself is the danger here. Um, and, and trying to work around that, you know, for activists in particular, trying to find a way to, you know, getting tested is necessary. We need to know who, you know, for, for your safety, but for other people's safety, we need to know, right? With, um, you know, interestingly enough, with HIV testing um, in Korea as well, if you get tested with a doctor, it goes, you know, into your public insurance records, right? Which is true in the United States that when you get tested with a doctor as opposed to, you know, a center where you can remain anonymous, um, it goes into your insurance and there's a public record or not a public record, but there's a record of getting tested and the testing results. The same in Korea. And so, you know, there are some anonymous testing centers that you can go to 
um, to get tested, which is part of you know HIV AIDS education in Korea and push. But you know, getting tested is um, is is like you said, it's 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 a precarious thing, and the very notion of the test is very precarious. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID calls and having a really fascinating conversation today with anthropologist Timothy Gitson about his work uh, with his co-author Wong Kun Chun, Pandemic Surveillance and Homophobia in South Korea, which appears in the uh, items collection of the Social Science Research Council. And just a shout out to the SSRC. Uh, I've been, full disclosure, I've also been curating um, with colleague Alexa Dietrich, um, who's a genius researcher in her own right. We've been curating pieces around disaster studies issues as well. So SSRC has really been supporting a lot of important work through this yeah. pandemic. And I just wanted to highlight that. Um, Timothy, let me come back. We have a few minutes left. I just want mm-hmm. to come back again, sort of a broader um, question here about the implications of this work as we think about marginalized populations in any country yeah. um, that finds themselves, you know, here in this tight spot between, you know, public safety uh, and identity and, and yeah. disclosure. And because, you know, what you've shown here, are all of the many nuances and layers to what this means for LGBTQ rights in, in South Korea, but there are many different types of marginalized populations mm-hmm. that have, I expect also found themselves in tight spot because of this kind of um, deployment of technology or close governmental scrutiny throughout Mm -hmm. the pandemic. And, and again, sometimes we think of it in the opposite in the United States, it's that the government didn't care to scrutinize the situation in nursing homes, for example. And so thousands and thousands of seniors died because the government wasn't conducting its, it wasn't carrying out its responsibilities. Mm -hmm. The framework that you're discovering here is, is a bit, not the opposite, but it's quite, it's quite different. But what, what are the impacts for other marginalized groups? Do you think? It's a good question. And um, so in Korea, you know, for, for different marginalized groups in Korea, you know, for HIV positive folks, for example, um, which aren't always, you know, with HIV positive folks, you see this type of double oppression. You know, some of the research that we did highlights this type of double oppression that they feel that they feel oppressed because they're HIV positive and feel oppressed because they're potentially, you know, that they potentially have COVID. Um, and that kind of, you know, the, the sickliness, right, the diseasedness of, of the body gets called into question, right? The, the, the livelihood of the body. Is the body actually productive? Can it, you know, fit within, um, you know, within society? But, you know, I think we've seen the ways in which COVID um, has affected, you know, race relations in the United States, Europe, um, in, in many countries, um, you know, with reference to the viruses, origi- the virus originating, you know, from China, um, even in places like, you know, Korea and Hong Kong, you still see some of that as well, interestingly enough, um, some of that association with mainland China. Um, as the originator of the virus. And so, um, you know, folks trying to navigate internet, you know, for example, students in the United States trying to navigate, international students trying to navigate, um, you know, COVID life amidst, uh, you know, amidst this type of intense racial backlash, 
I think, you know, is demonstrative of, of, of this. But in terms of how surveillance technologies come into play, you know, I think part of it is, you know, you, we may see, for example, certain spaces, right, getting, getting um, outed as, oh, these are hotspot spaces, right, the way that queer spaces were considered hotspots or churches prior to, you know, prior to the May 2020 outbreak, the first outbreak in Korea was with a church, right? Um, and so, you know, I think space, you know, space becomes a very important factor here. Um, but I think, you know, we've we talked a little bit about, you know, the mental, the, the, the mental effect that a lot of, you know, isolation has and, and quarantining has. But, you know, for, for certain populations that require, uh, or not require, but um, that are based in spaces, right, bars, clubs, churches, whatnot, when they have to move online, a lot of that community gets lost. You know, and so we're we're losing a lot of community in, in these space in in this move to online. I think you know there's a lot of pros to it, of course, but you know when when we're moving from from a, a place based community to an online based community, you know, forced to that community suffers. Uh, I've you know heard similar kinds of discussion. Um, about communities that are in addiction treatment in the yeah. United States, for example, you know, people being um, who are already facing stigma and challenges, and then they're forced into online spaces, and the mm -hmm. erosion of community can be life threatening. Yeah. Um, and there's another part of this which you signaled earlier, which I think is to me really fascinating and worth underlying. Uh, underlining is that also this sort of tendency to rush to a kind of a patient zero attitude. Yeah. Yeah. in the pandemic or with any kind of disease outbreak. And I think this is true with HIV AIDS too. Mm -hmm. well, well, we're just going to find out where it started. Yeah. We're going to find it. And, and oftentimes this plays into other narratives around intruders and, and yeah. Im immigrants. Um, it's, it's coming from somewhere else. We need to track it. It's going to be a few individuals and we're going to isolate them or we're going to, we're going to move them out. Mm -hmm. That was the reaction to the Omicron variant. And right. countries right. put these travel bans on Omicron was, readily circulating in all of these countries already that put the travel bans, but there is something psychologically satisfying, I think, to some yeah. to perform that. And I guess there's a sort of performative governmentality aspect to it as well. At least we're doing something and the thing we can do mm -hmm. is ultimately, I think, from a public health perspective, I'm going to stay in my lane here, but from what I've read, it's mm -hmm. not necessarily effective. What's more effective are, are real public health measures. Making right. sure that the hospitals have the supplies they need, people have the economic support they need to not go to work, rather than trying to find the few, you know, diseased miscreants in society and track and track them. Right. There's a great book by um, Priscilla Wald um, called Contagious, um, and what's nice about the book is that you know she talks about this outbreak narrative. And she talks exclusively about patient zero and how patient zero discourse, you know, was originating around the first case of, uh, of um, HIV AIDS, right? And how that discourse was, you know, trying to trace, you know, patient zero down to, you know, down to the first case, right? Um, this is, in, in, in my broader research around HIV AIDS and Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, I found some of this discourse come out in terms of 
um, the ways in which activists were responding to not just a patient zero or, you know, the, the first case, but around a type of pure space, right, to have some sort of purity, right, that, you know, we have a, a disease-free environment, disease-free space, which involves, of course, you know, tracking who is the first person and, and working outwards. But, you know, activists, queer activists, HIV AIDS activists, in response to that with MERS, a lot of them started to talk about, well, we can't really have you know, this, this, this flight of fancy around, around purity is actually quite dangerous because what it does is it erodes the very real experiences that people are having right now. You know, particularly people who, you know, have MERS or suspected MERS patients or people who, you know, are HIV positive. And so a lot of these activists used HIV and, you know, the ways in which they live with HIV to create this type of living with paradigm for, mm. for disease, which I think is quite relevant today as we move, as many countries move to this living with paradigm um, with COVID. That's a really interesting connection. Uh, we're almost up on time in the COVID calls discussion today with Timothy Gitson. Um, I just want to circle back to Hong Kong. Yeah. Similar kind of surveillance and LGBTQ situation unfolding there, or has it been different from what we've been discussing in South Korea? It's been a bit different from my, you know, from, from what I understand. Um, you know, I'm not, definitely not an expert on LGBT rights here in Hong Kong, um, but um, from what I think we see a lot of this migration onto online spaces, particularly because, you know, in Hong Kong, there's just a lot of regulation around what kinds of spaces are open. And so bars and clubs, right, you know, those types of spaces are, are closed right now. Um, and there have been months on end where they've been closed. And so that type of migration to online spaces, I think, you know, is, is, um, is happening more, more, more readily. Um, but in terms of, you know, surveillance and whatnot, um, you know, Hong Kong is also dealing with, you know, other issues that would, uh, pre that would predispose it to a certain kind of um, surveillance, you know, system and whatnot. But from my research, it's not necessarily the same kind of, um, you know, it's maybe not at the same level. I think a lot of it is based on uh, independent, independent contact tracing or individual, you know, um, using what's called the stay at home safe app or leave home safely app um, where, you know, you have a QR code and you scan it, right? Um, whenever you go someplace. And so they're, man they're making that mandatory in most spaces, public spaces now where you have to scan it um, if you go someplace. And, you know, now they're looking at, you know, creating a vaccine bubble around, you know, if you go into a restaurant or you go into a mall or whatnot, you need to have at least one dose of the vaccine um, in order to enter certain spaces. What a time to be a postdoctoral researcher <laughs> in Hong Kong, doing the kind of ethnography that you do, Timothy. Um, just a sort of last note on that. I mean, what's what's next in line for you in terms of, of projects? I mean, how are you? And I guess, yeah. you know, I think about how many conversations I've had with researchers who are like, well, I'm just waiting till the summer. I'm just waiting till the fall. I'm just right. waiting and just waiting and just waiting. And I, I'm sure, I mean, you've had to adapt your methodology to work oh, yeah. online. Others oh, yeah. have as well. What are you working on next? Um, so my next big project is all about viruses, interestingly enough. And so not just, not just infectious diseases, but, 
you know, this, the social and cultural interpretation of the viruses um, in Asia. And so part of this came out of COVID, but part of it came out of, you know, being in Hong Kong and seeing the response and seeing how viruses get narrated in you know, public life. And so, um, you know, pulling from not just ethnographic research, but from, you know, discourse analysis, film literature analysis, you know, trying to be a lot more interdisciplinary with this approach just because of the, um, you know, the, the situation. And so that's kind of, you know, where the research is heading is looking more into, you know, how do we, how do we understand viruses as not just a moment of crisis, but a moment of routine, right? How do we routinize viruses um, in daily life? You've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my guest today, Timothy Gitson. Um, fantastic work you're doing and really appreciate you going through it so carefully and talking about every aspect of it. Timothy, best of luck with the work to come. Thank you very much for having me. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. 